0: Good Morning Nancy is a horror movie podcast, so it may not be for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. morning nancy my name is gracie and i'm abby and if you're new to the show welcome and
1: if not well then welcome back yes the two of us have been friends since pretty much forever and we love talking about our favorite horror movies together and with you all while drinking a nice cup of coffee we've got a really good one today yes (laughs) we'll be discussing the 2001 mystery thriller mulholland drive the film was written and directed by david lynch and it stars naomi watts laura herring justin thoreau and melissa george dreamy dreamy justin thoreau
0: oh i thought you were gonna say dreamy dreamy melissa george (laughs) Because I think she is beautiful. <laughs> yes, yes, definitely. Her too. Justin yes. Theroux is pretty too. Yeah. All right. Well, we're not shy about spoilers. So if you haven't seen this film, we highly suggest that you pause this episode and watch it. Specific trigger warnings for this episode can be found in the show notes. Okay. Are you still here? Great. Then let's get this morning started. Abby, would you be so kind as to read the plot summary?
1: Yes. Betty has just arrived from Los Angeles, from Ontario. Moon-faced and starry-eyed, she can't wait to make it big in Hollywood. When she arrives at her aunt's supposedly empty apartment, she finds a strange, injured woman there who calls herself Rita, although that's not really her name. Rita tells Betty she has amnesia, but she does remember that she was in a car accident on Mulholland Drive. The dreamy first half of the film follows Betty and Rita trying to solve the mystery of Rita's identity, but the second half of the film becomes a literal nightmare as the plot (laughs) twists and turns, and it makes the audience uneasy, almost as if we are driving down the real Mulholland Drive ourselves. Dun-dun-dun! Thank you, Abby,
0: for that lovely Mm -hmm. reading of the plot summary. Mm Mm-hmm. (laughs) Okay, so let's talk about a bit of about the production of this film. Um, I know we're trying to like keep like the production of the films like, kind of like minimal, because that's not really the most important part of these movies, really, when we when we discuss them, at least. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think for this one, it's important to see the, the progression of how this film was released because this film is about Hollywood. Yeah. So uh yeah, let's, let's talk about it. So, The story and script for Mulholland Drive has gone through many changes, but like all of David Lynch's films, it started out as just an idea that he captured while meditating. The idea was the simple image of the road sign reading Mulholland Drive with the car's headlights illuminating it. Of course, this is the scene in the title credits in the finished film. After Lynch Lynch captured the idea, he now had to create the tale. According to Sunayan Bhatta even though the story of Mulholland Drive is maybe about the dark side of Hollywood and features many references to old Hollywood films, quote, it is ironic that the film was actually conceived in the form of a television pilot. The ending was kept deliberately open-ended in order to convert it into a probable series, unquote. And according to Christine Devine, quote, Lynch described the attractiveness of the idea of a pilot, despite the knowledge that the medium of television would be constricting. I'm a sucker for a continuing story. Theoretically, you can get a very deep story and you can go so deep and open the world so beautifully, but it takes time to do that, unquote. (laughs) That was my David Lynch impression. I'm so sorry.
1: Oh, nice, nice. Oh, (laughs) Oh, yeah, great. Don't
0: do it again. (laughs) 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 um originally fellow twin peaks co-creator mark frost was going to make the show with lynch after the conclusion of twin peaks one idea for the show was to have twin peaks character audrey horn leave the small town and escape to hollywood the show would then follow audrey's dark adventures in tinseltown but after the cancellation of twin peaks and lynch and frost's falling out don't worry they're still frenemies i think lynch scrapped the twin peaks connection to mulholland drive and came up with something different he pitched his idea to abc and they gave him the green light to make a pilot now because it was a tv show and not a film yet abc wanted to save money on actors so lynch was encouraged to (laughs) you know his arm was twisted a little there to stay away from any big names and hire mostly unknown actors British actor Naomi Watts was 29 at the time, and she was more than down on her luck. After a decade of struggling in Los Angeles, she was ready to quit if she didn't get the job for Mulholland Drive. Oh, yes. And you know what? She almost didn't get it because, according to David Lynch, she didn't look anything like her headshot. Which, listen, it's a, <gasps> that's a huge no-no <laughs> for aspiring yeah. actors out there. Yeah. You gotta look like your headshot. Trust me. Um, but Joanna Ray, the casting director, told Lynch to meet with Watts again and talk to her. Well, that did the trick. They had a nice conversation, I guess. And Watts was hired for the lead. This is the girl, truly. Mexican-American actor, model, and 1985 Miss America winner, Laura Herring was cast at around the same time as Watts. Uh, Herring was coincidentally in a car accident while on her way to meet David Lynch. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, very weird, right? Uh, Justin Thoreau was cast soon after the two lead women were cast, and he met with Lynch right after he got off his plane to L.A. And he was dressed in, like, loose-fitting black clothes, and he had sunglasses and frizzy hair, and Lynch loved it. And he decided he wanted Thoreau to wear that exact outfit as his character, Adam.
1: Ah, <laughs> oh, so cute.
0: I know. <laughs> After shooting and editing the pilot, the producers deemed it too long. So Lynch had to cut it down to a me- measly, miserable 90 minutes. <laughs> 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 Much of the heart and soul and mystery is gone from that original pilot, which you can watch on youtube everyone if you really are interested yeah um but don't it's not good oh yeah uh abc (laughs) finally just said nah this sucks and they dropped the project
1: (laughs) you know I, I, i abc and david lynch just don't really resonate with each other i don't think was twin peaks on abc originally I I think
0: it actually was yes. Wow, that surprises me. Mm-hmm. Well, you know it was the nineties, I guess. But true, true. Everything was a little bit weird. Everything was <laughs> just a little bit weird. But you know what? I think Mulholland Drive was just a. I think it was too cerebral. Yes.
1: <laughs> Even the
0: ninety minute pilot was like mm, was yeah. a little much. <laughs> so uh, regular people don't get it. <laughs> Uh, so French film actor and producer, I think you pronounce his name, Alain Sardé, I think. Um, he had heard whispers of this mysterious pilot that was canceled by ABC, made by Lynch, uh, and he asked Lynch for a copy. Uh, Lynch even said something like, please don't watch it. It's not good. Oh. <laughs> so I remember, I think there, in, in the book, Lynch on Lynch, he's like, oh my God. He's like, don't watch it. And Sardé was like, no, no, like like let me let me let me and he was like okay fine so he sent it to him and sarday thought this has a lot of potential let's make this into a movie hmm. so uh yeah he produced the film uh, a lot of the scenes from the pilot are in the film but the extra scenes you know the, the stuff that you don't see in the pilot that's in the film that was all added almost two years later so that's wild. That's that's Whoa. a long time. Yeah. So according to the Wikipedia page dedicated to the film, despite the proliferation of theories, uh, critics note that no explanation satisfies all of the loose ends and questions that arise from the film. Stephen Holden of the New York Times writes, Mulholland Drive has little to do with any single character's love life or professional ambition. The movie is an ever deepening reflection on the allure of Hollywood and on the multiple role playing and self invention that the movie going experience promises. What greater power is there than the power to enter and to program the dream life of the culture, unquote. And Jay Haberman from The Village Voice echoes the sentiment, calling it a poisonous valentine to Hollywood. I love that. Yeah, me too. Um, So this is something I didn't realize that was connected to this film. And it is incredibly uncanny and very heartbreaking. But uh, William Scheibel points out that the official dedication of the film went to David Lynch's assistant, uh, I think her name is Jennifer Sim or Syme, I'm not sure. S y m e. I don't. I don't know how to pronounce her last name. But she was an actress uh, as well as his assistant, and she was killed in a Hollywood car accident at the age of 29. And she was most, I think, most famously Keanu Reeves' uh, girlfriend, <gasps> and she was pregnant. Um, no. And way. then she, well, she gave birth. St- they had a stillbirth. And she was super depressed and she was undergoing treatment for it. And then right after the stillbirth, she got into this car accident.
1: Holy shit.
0: Yes. So it is incredibly sad. <laughs> I wow. mean, incredibly. Ooh.
1: I just got chills. I did not know. I yes. did not know. Mm-hmm. Oh my God.
0: Oh. Yeah. I know. So it's like, this film was dedicated to her. It's it's so weird. It's sad. And uh, yeah, it makes my stomach hurt.
1: But it makes me love the film even more in kind of a fucked up way. Because it's like, I think, especially with, it's a little bit off topic here, but with Keanu Reeves, like, he is a very beloved actor of our time. Mm-hmm. So we all feel this kind of weird connection to him. And mm-hmm. like, so to have a film like this dedicated to her oh my god it's just oh uh, oh uh, uh. yeah
0: there's a there's a weird parasocial relationship that yes. i think we have with keanu reeves and so hearing that he had such a, a tragic thing happen to him you know his the you know his this potential child is born still born and then his girlfriend yeah. is dies yeah it makes it even more sad i think oh,
1: right.
0: oh my god so Mulholland Drive premiered at the 2001 Cannes <laughs> Cannes Fest- Film Festival. Whatever. I'm gonna pronounce it incorrectly from now on, just oh. because I don't care.
1: I don't give a fuck. My husband made fun of me the first. Time. I was like, Canis.
0: We're gonna say Canis from now on, just to make everyone skin crawl. <laughs>
1: Oh, my God. Uh, oh. So anyway, it
0: premiered then in May of 2001 uh, to major critical acclaim, and Lynch was awarded the Best Director Prize at the festival, sharing it with co-winner Joel Cohen for The Man Who Wasn't There. Mulholland Drive was eventually released into theaters in October of 2001, making almost $13 million in the U.S. and over $20 million abroad. However, the film had a budget of $15 million, so it was not a box office success, technically. Mm. Yeah. Mm. According to the Wikipedia page dedicated to the film, Lynch was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Director for the film. From the Hollywood Foreign Press, the film received four Golden Globe nominations, including Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Screenplay. Mary Sweeney, the editor, was also a producer on the film, and she won a BAFTA for her editing. According to Sunayan Bhattacharji, quote, Interestingly enough, the 2002 DVD release of the movie contained a card insert entitled David Lynch's 10 Clues to Unlocking This Thriller. Um, the clues <laughs> that were mentioned in the card read as thus. 1. Pay particular attention to the beginning of the film. At least two clues are revealed before the credits. 2. Notice appearances of the red lampshade. 3. Can you hear the title of the film that Adam Kesher is auditioning actresses for? Is it mentioned again? 4. An accident is a terrible event. Notice the location of the accident. 5. Who gives a key and why? 6. Notice the robe, the ashtray, the coffee cup. 7. 7. What is felt, realized, and gathered at the Club Silencio? Eight. Did talent alone help Camilla? Nine. Note the occurrences surrounding the man behind Winkies. Ten. Uh. Where is Aunt Ruth? <laughs> um, Lynch had his arm proverbially twisted by Alan Sarday to write these clues for the DVD release. However, oh Lynch likes to explain Mulholland Drive as a deconstruction of the Hollywood narrative uh lynch says part one she found herself inside the perfect mystery part two a sad illusion part three love so we have these clues that lynch was pretty much forced to add to the dvd Mm -hmm. um uh dvd jacket and then we have um his own interpretation which is the three parts sad illusion or sorry the perfect mystery sad illusion and then love but honestly y'all None of this even fucking matters.
1: It really I mean, does not. It doesn't.
0: <laughs> Truly. I mean, like, even though we're going to talk about this movie now and how it makes us feel and how other things, other theories that we like are interpreted and stuff, and prob- they're all probably completely different. You know what I mean? Mm. So it's like, it's fine. It's fine. None <laughs> None of this matters. <laughs> i <trying> to say. <laughs> I think if you try to think about what other people feel, you end up putting your own ideas into that. Does that make sense? It's like you hear the clues and you hear what David Lynch thinks about it and you're like, okay, but that's not the point. I mean, the whole thing is like this film started out as a TV pilot. It it literally was like, I hate to say it, but it was like Frankenstein together to be turned into a film. Right. It was supposed to have a continuing storyline and it doesn't.
1: Well... I wa this was the first time I've seen this film. And I don't know why. Like I've it's always been on my list to watch it because I really enjoy David Lynch's work, but when we were writing the script for this film, I purposely did not do a whole lot of research because yeah. I wanted to interpret it in my own way and I didn't want anyone like from the outside influencing what I thought about it. Right. So I just watched the film (laughs) like i watched it and enjoyed it and it was great and then once i was done um doing my research for the script i kind of went back just to see what other people were saying about it and i i really couldn't find too much that matched my thoughts or interpretations of the film so it's like all up in the air really well yeah and i mean like i i
0: I already had I've seen this film a few times and I already had in my head like what I thought it was about and then so when I started researching I had the same thing I was like oh I'm really curious to see what other people have to say about it
1: Mm
0: -hmm. and I was like oh these people are wrong (laughs) (laughs) which listen that they're not wrong they have their own idea of what the film is about yeah and that's the point Yes. I, I, You know, because I think there's this, I think Justin Thoreau even asked David Lynch, he was like, what the hell is my character's motivation here? Like, what am I supposed to be doing here? And David Lynch was like, you know what, Justin, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I think, and you know, and we talked about this when we did Fire Walk With Me, but a lot of David Lynch films, yes, they kind of feel like they're taking place in a dream, but um, I think especially this one, um, it's all about how you feel how does it make you feel you know and fire walk with me right was all about like intense raw human emotion Mm -hmm. and this maybe isn't as intense as fire walk with me but you still get like uh, that feeling you know it's still this film still makes you feel things and maybe you're like i don't know what i'm feeling i don't know why i feel this way but like this is how I interpret why I feel this way. You know what I mean? So I think, I think that I think it's meant to be that way.
1: Yes. Yes. I wholeheartedly agree with that. I think that David Lynch, the, the beauty of his work is that it's the outcome of it depends on your own personal experience. So what you experience in your life plays a role in determining like How you interpret this film, and you can say that for a lot of films, but I think in particular that's something that he's really good at. Like he, he um, sort of has, I don't know how to describe it. Like he has faith in his audience,
0: yes. To and
1: he understands that like they have their own like intelligence and stuff, so they're gonna interpret it any way that they see fit, and he's fine with it. Like. Other filmmakers are like, no, that's not what I meant by blah blah blah. But he's just like, yeah, cool. That sounds oh yeah, he really very, groovy.
0: <laughs> sure, he very famously does not talk about what his films mean. Yeah, um, and it makes people bonkers. But like, I think you and I talked about this in our Fire Walk with Me episode. I'm like, mm-hmm. I don't think his films are that hard to decipher because it's it's about what you think. It doesn't yes. matter what he thought it was about. It's about what you think it's about. Yeah. So it shouldn't be hard for you to think about what a David Lynch film means because it's whatever you think it is. Exactly. Every answer is correct. Yeah. Uh, Mulholland Drive now has an intense cult following. Uh, I recently saw the film here in Buffalo at the North Park Theater and wowie wow, that theater was packed i mean not a single empty seat and there were people even standing up like in the back row because they didn't have a seat and i would say most people love this film now i wow yes i think that the i think if you like david lynch you like this film basically you know maybe it's not your favorite but i think you might like it um my husband Luke, he said, um, he loved it, and he's like, I don't even know what this film's about. <laughs> hey. He he just passively he just passively watched it. He didn't like think too hard about what was going on. He didn't try to solve it like I like to do. He just watched it and just like <laughs> scene, 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 you know. And he was like, Yep, that was great. I have no idea what I just saw, but that was great. And I was like, You know what? That's all that matters. <laughs> Um, According to William Scheibel, quote, in 2016, BBC Culture listed 100 greatest films of the 21st century voted by critics from around the world, and they ranked in first place in 2016, Mulholland Drive. Wow. So, yeah, not only does this film resonate with cinephile Americans, but everyone (laughs) all over the world
1: dang all right
0: according to clint stivers quote one of the delights of this film is that its seeming indeterminacy follows for a variety of different readings so yeah who cares what we you and i abby think about this film it (laughs) doesn't it doesn't matter (laughs) uh all right so dear listener let me tell you Right. While I was re- researching this, I had a hard time finding articles that jive with me. Um, And I know you did too, Abby. So yeah. So this discussion is going to be like the first part, I guess, or like most of this uh, is going to be what other people thought mixed in with what you and I think. So it's like a, a, like a, a good mixture of like our thoughts on the film plus other like critics and and essayists like their thoughts on the film and then for our final thought it's going to be like in our in the in its purest form our thoughts about the film right yes okay Yes. so here we go
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: all right so let's start with a poisonous valentine to hollywood According to Sunayan Bhattacharji, quote, it cannot possibly be forgotten that Lynch himself is a product of Hollywood, a subculture that he equally loves and despises. (laughs) The, The fact that Lynch has not made a single feature film since Inland Empire was released in 2006 bears a testimony to the fact that Lynch was not really in love with Hollywood. At the same time lynch has always been fascinated by the fantastic world that hollywood helps him conjure it provides the window of escape for lynch who is more of a surrealist artist than a filmmaker unquote so i have a sister who lives in la and she is an actor and this is real by the way uh she has been in a bunch of different films and commercials And she also helps less experienced actors get the right, like, headshots and resume and so on. Um, And she absolutely loves living in L.A. But she will also be the first to tell you how incredibly grueling the entertainment industry is. Yeah. And listen, I have never tried to make it in Hollywood, but I have tried to make it into theater in New York City. And it is a nightmare
1: Uh, a
0: literal nightmare now this is my own like experience but the idea of men just staring at you and judging you and making sure you look the part is so inherently creepy to me like yeah (laughs) there have been some auditions that are just lovely and they go great but i have been to some auditions that have made me feel like shit. That have made me very uncomfortable. And I have worked with other actors and producers and directors who were unsafe and predatory and sometimes just simply mean. And um, I did a few off-Broadway shows and was in a few comedy troupes when I lived in New York City. But after I lived there, after a while, I was just, I was done. I was so done i was like get me out of here it was not fun it didn't make it fun and it it yeah i just felt like i was under a microscope the whole time so i was like you know what i'm out of here and i moved to colorado
1: (laughs) i moved to the mountains (laughs) i'm glad for you thank
0: you (laughs) now don't get me wrong i'm really glad i tried it out and i did it but it was really rough and the entertainment industry is just incredibly ruthless and draining. And I didn't like the idea of selling myself. And there's a part of me that still feels guilty that I had done all that work to essentially give up in the end. Um, at first it was kind of humiliating. It's like, you know, you're like, oh my gosh, I'm gonna go to New York and I'm gonna like make it big, you know, or I'm gonna get on Broadway or whatever. And, um, And it didn't happen because it was too much for me personally. Yeah. And I'm fine now because, like, I know that's not the life that I want. It's not the life for me because, you know, that's I, like, I look back and I'm like, I'm glad I did that, but I'm glad I didn't make it because I didn't, I don't want that life. And so, like, I'm fine now, but at the time, like, it was really hard for me to come to terms with that. And Chris Rodley, who did an excellent interview with David Lynch, said, It feels like only yesterday, 1932, (laughs) that bit part (sighs) actress Peg Entwistle hanged herself from the Hollywood sign when she failed to get a studio contract. Mm. It was only a moment before 1913 that ruthless engineer William Mulholland was director of Water and Power in LA, the road that took his name. The road we find ourselves on now is still haunted by the mad, sad, bad spirits of A, B, and Z-list actors, revisiting the sites of their murders, suicides, and orgies, still smiling for the camera, craving for their final close-up, Ugh.
1: Yeah.
0: yeah. And y'all might remember us talking about Peg Entwistle from our episode on 13 Women. Really, really mm. terrible tragedy that is unfortunately not surprising. The industry can sometimes be equated to an abusive relationship. One minute you're on cloud nine, the next you're in the depths of Hades. As Julie Grossman concludes in her book, Rethinking the Femme Fatale in Film Noir, quote, Sunset Boulevard and Mulholland Drive are particularly interested in the plight of women as they reflect the culture demand for, restrictions on, and destructive manipulation of the female image, unquote. Yeah, yeah. An abuse, it runs rampant in the industry. It's an open secret. Even so, it destroys careers when people speak up about it. Brendan Fraser, for one, who has thankfully made a comeback. Yeah. In an essay written by Ira Madison III in 2017, Madison says, quote, what's far more important to examine is how these bad men have deprived us of so many other artists, the young women or men they've bullied, terrorized, and kept out of the industry. The people whose names will never know because they met men like these upon their arrival in Hollywood. The careers dashed, like the recent admission from the Lord of the Rings filmmaker Peter Jackson, who said that Weinstein warned him off of casting Mira Sorvino and Ashley Judd in his blockbuster fantasy trilogy. His claim was echoed by director Terry Zweigoff, who tweeted, quote, I was interested in casting Mira Sorvino in Bad Santa, but every time I mentioned her over the phone to the Weinsteins, I'd hear a click. What type of person uh, just hangs up on you like that? I guess we all know what type of a person now. I'm really sorry, Mira. Unquote.
1: I was gonna say, there is no way we can talk about this film without mentioning the women who outed, like, Harvey Weinstein. Yeah. I think it's a really hilarious synchronicity, like the fact that you just mentioned Peter Jackson, and (laughs) that Weinstein looks like a goddamn orc, like the one in Return of the King.
0: (laughs) Yes, that was intentional. Peter Jackson made that orc look like him. Yes, because of how much he hated working with Weinstein.
1: Supposedly. Oh. Oh my God, I love it. I yes. Love it,
0: I love it. I love it. <laughs> um So, anyway, to me, the car accident that happens on Mulholland Drive at the beginning of the film is a representation of industry abuse. And I think, you know, again, don't we don't have to look into too deep the clues that David Lynch left, but he said, what happens in the accident and where does it take place? Well, it happens on Mulholland Drive, yeah. the road to Hollywood. You know so the accident happens and all the witnesses are killed but one woman escapes alive but she is missing the police the detectives who appear only once know that she's out there but they have no idea where she, where she could be they never find her and in fact they don't even try because we never see we never see those detectives again
1: <laughs> sorry something i just thought of in the film the detectives talk about um they mentioned something about her like wearing pearls or something
0: like that i forget what they find a pearl earring yeah
1: yeah yeah and i'm wondering if like that is sort of an indication of like i don't know if to me it feels like oh she's not wearing something like It's not a diamond earring. So it kind of says something about her status. And then they're like, well, she's not super important. So I guess we'll just give up this investigation. And I feel like that is so telling of what happens, especially in like the Los Angeles area with, you know, people who are victims of crimes and stuff like that. If they aren't high status or like seemingly very important people, they're just like, nah, fuck it. Or if they're replaceable. Yes, yes.
0: You know and that just goes to show you how often people are replaced in hollywood yeah, like they don't totally. even care that you want to hire somebody because there's always somebody else out there who looks pretty much similar to this person you want to hire but that person hasn't outed us for sexual assault
1: <laughs> so, totally totally yeah it's, it sounds like late stage capitalism to me <laughs> sure and i mean
0: like this idea of the police never finding her right it's like yeah it's people who are abused by the industry and they either go missing or they just stop appearing in films because of this quote-unquote accident yeah so uh you know like i mentioned brendan fraser ashley judd mira sorvino Etc. You know, Mulholland Drive is a winding road. It's not an easy road to follow in in real life, right? And where does it lead? Right. As I mentioned, this road literally leads to the Hollywood sign. The accident happens before the woman in the car can get there to the top. What are you doing? She says, "We don't stop here, and we don't stop here because there's still some work to do before we get famous, before we make it to the top." But then a gun is pulled on her. And quite literally, right, a gun is held to her head. <laughs> mm-hmm. And she is violently injured. She's attacked. The movie has just started, but the whole ordeal feels unnatural and wrong. It feels like an attack. It feels like rape. The woman stumbles away from the wreckage as if she's been drugged. So it feels like a date rape incident, like this this car accident.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I would totally agree with that. It also felt like like a mafia hit, almost. And I know that, you know, the mafia has really strong ties to Hollywood, and you can see that in this film. Like, they're they're these, like, big sort of, I guess you would call them almost, like, they look like mafia guys who are there to intimidate and stuff like that, and uh, it's so telling of the entire machine and how the industry works, and yeah a lot of it's people so scary
0: sure and a lot of people interpret this scene as the uh ending of the movie like um yeah diane puts the hit on camilla with the guy with the leather jacket <laughs> uh-huh. you know and the key like and it's he's the one who kills her and it's like okay like that. i don't look at that as as that i think this whole film is metaphorical i don't think there's really any scene that can be taken literally
1: yeah um yep yep
0: yep. but i knew i do know a lot of people do think that the mafia literally does try to take out camilla aka rita (sighs) in that scene (laughs) yeah um so let's talk about identity in hollywood judy marilyn and rita According to Maximilian LeCain, quote, In Fire Walk With Me, Laura Palmer blocks the fact that it is her father who has been abusing her by mentally creating a different rapist. Spoiler alert, listen to our episode on Fire Walk With Me if you want to learn more. (laughs) Yeah. In Lost Highway and Mulholland Drive, it could be argued that the leading characters change not only the identity of those around them, but also their own identity to escape other traumas, unquote. And according to Clint Stivers, quote, most viewers have been absolutely baffled by the film overall and by its two different stories, especially since they are performed by the same actors, unquote. So I get it. It's weird that the actors change characters and names, but in the context of this film, I think it actually makes a ton of sense.
1: Yeah. Also, as someone who studies psychology, it's something that I really, really enjoyed and I think anyone who is fascinated by, like, personality psychology loves this film because David Lynch really gets that part of the human psyche. Like, he is incredibly well-versed in what trauma does to human beings. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we say that, like, his sort of signature or, I guess, his artistic expression that's what this is like if you ever speak directly to a trauma survivor or someone who has a psychotic break especially a break with reality like Mm. everything feels surreal because there is this separation you know when that break from reality happens that's actually so common like it happens to so many people and we don't even realize it but they are afraid to talk about it because of societal stigma and especially in hollywood everyone is just pretending they're pretending that everything is normal but it's such a mad world there and it's very like meta i guess so i'm excited to hear you know your thoughts and interpretations on this but i think that what is so brilliant about david lynch is that everyone can relate to the weirdness in some way Because he captures it so well. Like if (laughs) you if you are someone who has ever had a dream, you're like, (laughs) you're like, wow, whoa, that's like so succinctly captured on Mm -hmm. film. So people think it's weird and not normal, but it's actually very normal. Um yeah, I think that that's so funny that
0: you bring up like like the mental break because When you have to live a bunch of different lives, (laughs) yeah. how does your brain not break anyway?
1: Oh, my God. Like, it's hard enough to have one life. Right. No, (laughs) for sure. And so, like, let's
0: talk about Judy. And we talked a bit about the idea of Judy in our episode on Fire Walk With Me. And David Lynch has an obsession with Judy Garland and Mm -hmm. the 1935 film The Wizard of Oz. And guess Mm -hmm. what? Going to talk more about those two things here. According to Lynch Oz director, Alexandre Felipe, quote: When you look at the arc of some of Lynch's characters, whether it's Mulholland Drive or Inland Empire, these are aspiring actresses who meet a very tragic end. He says, "I do believe that the meta story of Judy Garland and the heartbreak of the Hollywood machine is something that he's been thinking about, and it's present Mm. in." his work mm-hmm. so according to the article just like a movie star the evolution of lynch's judy the motif of a girl traveling to a strange world full of both magic and horror is one that lynch emulates in almost every one of his films and the essay then talks about judy garland and says born francis ethel gum Judy was signed to Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer when she was only 13 and played the famous role of Dorothy Gale three years later. She was originally supposed to wear a blonde wig for that part, but ultimately the producers decided against it. The stress of living always in the public eye ate away at Garland, driving her to multiple suicide attempts, stays at mental wards, and addiction to morphine, alcohol, and barbiturates. All I could see ahead was more confusion, Garland was quoted as saying, after one of her many career disasters. At the age of 47, Garland was found dead of a barbiturate overdose. According to doctors who examined her, she was already dying of cirrhosis and only had a matter of time anyway. The essay continues, This dark, tragic life full of turmoil and a sense of hopelessness is such a jarring juxtaposition to the roles she was most famous for. Happy, bright young girls, always singing and dancing and full of cheer. Judy Garland, who was born Frances, became Dorothy on the screen and was Judy to the public." So after hearing all this, you can't help but get the similarities between... Judy Garland's life and Mulholland Drive the multiple identities the women in film have in my opinion represent the multiple identities actors especially the actors of the past who quite regularly changed their names had to have yeah Betty is also Diane Rita is also Camilla but Camilla is also Camilla so if Rita is Camilla then who is the other Camilla Adam's mother is Coco but she is also the landlady also named Coco. The waitress in the restaurant is Diane, but wait, now she's Betty. But if she's Diane, and also Betty, then who was the other Diane Betty? And who is <laughs> Sylvia North, the title character in the movie that everyone is auditioning for? <laughs> oh. Judy is Frances, and Frances is Judy, and they are both Dorothy. it's wild (laughs) it's wild and anyone would have an identity crisis like i said that if that was what you had to deal with who are you you know who are you right and we're going to talk more about that quote in a minute rita says to betty rita is not my name i don't know who i am and betty says you're rita betty knows her as rita her stage name so to speak her real name, her real life, not a clue. Not even Rita can remember after the trauma she's been through. This confusion on identity is intentional. It's not supposed to frustrate us, but we are meant to question everyone's identity. Mm -hmm. In a dream world where you can be anyone you want to be, why wouldn't there be some confusion to everyone else? I'd argue that in dreams, sometimes people you know play different roles, act in ways that they never would have acted in reality call themselves different names oh and this relates beautifully to the wizard of oz where oh my god five of the actors in the film play dual roles right dorothy says and you were there and you were there and you were there and you were there you know when she wakes up from her dream Mm -hmm. so this whole idea of different characters and actors playing different roles this is nothing new in film anyway especially in films that are about like the dream world
1: yes and something a connection that i just made as we were talking about this and i talk about later on in our discussion kind of what the what the dumpster creature represents and stuff like that i'm glad
0: you bring it up because i did not even get to winkies when i was writing
1: the script (laughs) well the thing that like i just thought of was um Oh, my God. I am so sorry. I can't remember the lady's name, but she comes to Ruth's apartment when Betty is there, and she knocks on the door, and she's like, there's there's something wrong. Like, there's something in there. There's oh, trouble. Yes. What's, what's that lady's name? Louise Bonner. She's played by Lee Grant. Okay. So Louise comes to the door, and, you know, she's telling Betty, like, oh, there's something wrong. There's, like, something in your apartment that's bad. Yeah. I totally can see Luis being a version of the person behind the dumpster behind Winkies. Sure, sort of like like a banshee letting you yes. know like something bad's about to happen. Yeah. Yes. like because we see it all the time, especially in places like Hollywood, that like you have a mental illness and you end up homeless on the street completely different from who you were like a decade ago. And I could totally see Luis like making that transformation into this really, really fucking frightening dumpster creature.
0: <laughs> yes. I mean and, and that dumpster creature, um, so many people think that it is a man playing that role and it's not. It's Bonnie, I think her name's Bonnie Aaron. Bonnie Aaron's yes, yeah. Bonnie Aaron's who plays the nun in The Conjuring.
1: Yeah. Because and she's got a she's got very prominent features. She does, are. yeah. But she's she, beautiful, but she is so intense looking. She <laughs> is, and but she
0: is covered so well that you cannot tell. You know, it is just the dumpster monster. That's all it is. Yeah, you know, she looks and like a heap of garbage. She literally. does, literally. She does, and that is yeah the the dark underbelly of what happens when you're identity like you don't know what or who you are or what yes. the trouble is and you yes. just start morphing into something else if you live long enough to become the dumpster monster
1: uh, yeah. <laughs> yes. i think we all strive to live to be a dumpster monster someday <laughs> i hope so my god um the other thing that this made me think of too is how coco dresses and the makeup that she wears, she's always seen like in a kimono. And mm, she's mm-hmm. got like that old timey Hollywood makeup on that's supposed to make her look Asian. And it's mm. it, to me, that was kind of a testament to how like she could have been this like former actress and. You know she was cast in these roles and she didn't do very well so of course now she's a landlord and she houses all of these um aspiring actors and like it's it's such a like a hollywood fairy tale almost she's like i don't know i don't know how to describe her character but she herself has so many layers and she ends up having adam who is her son who actually becomes a successful director so she's got ties to the film industry and maybe she was kind of like one of those outcast people who you know you're very involved and you know everyone you know like who's who in the film industry but you're not like super important
0: but you're not in the industry oh how many times have you met somebody who says i'm related to the brother of I don't know. Somebody, somebody, somebody. You know? It's like that's what they thrive on is that one connection to something powerful. Quote quote unquote powerful. Yeah. Yes. And it's so
1: surprising to all of us when it's finally revealed that, like, she's Adam's mom. And you're like... Oh, whoa, holy shit. Sure, yeah. It's like one of those moments, like, whoa, kind of to get back to what we were saying about like identity and stuff like that. To me, Lynch in this film is kind of saying that no one is who they seem to be. And it's both exhilarating and dangerous. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I think we're enamored by what happens in Hollywood because, you know, deep down, we know that these are real people. But they live lives of absolute prestige that is so far away from how we live our lives. Right. As like, quote unquote, regular people. But really, it's all super ugly underneath. Like, it's all a facade. Yeah. And, and a, an illusion. But we eat it up because maybe deep down we kind of wish for that sort of lifestyle. right? And it like stardom can happen to literally anyone it is the luck of the draw so that kind of adds an element of excitement to it right it's like you're taking a gamble by you know like ditching your life and like moving out to la or new york city and you're gonna become a movie star oh yeah i mean lynch lynch
0: did uh compare vegas to to hollywood And in one of his interviews which i thought was interesting
1: (laughs) yeah totally totally like the fact that huge hollywood starlets came from nothing and then were thrust into this world so quickly and aggressively but they're expected to act like their lives aren't kind of spiraling out of control seems to be like the biggest show of all and we love to see it As humans, we are so interested in demise of other people. Like, we're so morbid. To me, it feels really gross. Mm -hmm. Like, I have never, and I'm not saying this to be pretentious in any way, I don't like celebrity gossip for that reason. I've never been into, like, reality shows, blah, 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 blah. Because I don't like seeing that, like, element of pain in human beings, yeah, it I feels just, ex- I don't like it. Yeah, it's it's exploitative in a way, but I think too the the duality of this is that people who are really in touch with their shadow selves also like to see that, like their curiosity leads them to like watch these things or keep up and like the celebrity world and stuff like that to see like who is you know dying of overdose who is like really letting themselves go and like gaining all that weight and like yeah. <laughs> who's going through divorce who's losing their kids in a custody battle like it's so so seedy and wild yeah it is <laughs> it really is um
0: yeah hm. you know i just thought of something while you were saying that that had kind of to do with what we're talking about here but my uh great great I, I think great I think three greats I, I think grandmother, uh huh um she won a contest where she got to dance with Rudolph Valentino the actor Whoa! and um she was then asked if she wanted to sign a Hollywood contract what and she said no because she and this was her reason i don't want to be far from my family oh (laughs) and you know you think when my family would tell that story it was in a like oh isn't that awful that she chose that oh my god (laughs) we could have had a famous person in our family and instead i thought you know didn't rudolph valentino die from alcoholism you know it's like these these people in Hollywood, even way back in the twenties, you know, like they had really stressful and kind of terrible lives.
1: Yeah. Wasn't he also a closeted gay man? Well or believed I'll... to be gay. He, like... he
0: was it was speculated. I don't wanna to speculate too much on someone's sexuality if it's not right, right, right. really known. Um, even though they you know, he is deceased. But um he well, did play... I'm just
1: saying because that has to be like a really painful way to live your life if that was the case. Well, like,
0: listen, Abby, <laughs> we're gonna talk about that in a minute here. So, um, let's we'll move yeah. on. But, um, I think it's interesting that other people are so obsessed with fame that when somebody doesn't become famous, they're a letdown you know and it's like she lived a great long life and had kids and was
1: very successful in her family you know but it's like but she didn't become a movie star also you might not be here if she went to hollywood sure did you ever think about that truly
0: (laughs) all right so let's get into uh this next part here so norma jean baker was born a brunette but dyed her hair bottle blonde and became marilyn monroe Mm -hmm. Monroe was beautiful and witty, and she had an amazing natural comedic talent, and she sadly died when she was only 36. Rita Hayworth, whom Herring's character gets her name from, was born Margarita Carmen Casino, and Hayworth was an explosive dancer. She was adept in ballet, tap, ballroom, and Spanish routines, and... Unlike Monroe and Garland, she didn't die from an overdose young, but instead, also tragic, from Alzheimer's disease at the age of 68. So, all of these women had tragic ends, and many, many parts of their lives were tragic. But, like we mentioned, they were human. They are humans. They're real people. When Tinseltown is thrown into the mix, it's hard to see that. Identity becomes muddled forgotten or even lost yeah and the idea of the doppelganger can be used to explain the multiple identities as well according to the essay amnesia obsession cinematic u-turns on mulholland drive quote betty's true identity is foreshadowed when she and rita phone diane's number when betty whispers that it's strange to be calling yourself she is ostensibly thinking out loud for rita but in fact it is betty herself who is doing the calling and when the answering machine responds with hi it's me leave a message rita's response unwittingly points to betty's direction that's not my voice she says but i know her i believe that surrounding the myth of the doppelganger you're not supposed to meet your double or kill them because you will go insane or something like that yeah well betty and rita go to diane's apartment and they find diane but she's already dead now, I have an unhinged and shaky theory about this part. Uh, within this context, at least. And it's mm-hmm. super complicated, so I'm incredibly sorry if it doesn't make any sense. But I hope it will later. Or not. I don't know. Anyway, Diane is dead. Okay. We know that. Later in the film, she dies by suicide after the old people come after her. I think, in the context of the series, I think that Diane met her double and she couldn't handle it. And so, we know she couldn't have met Betty. But maybe her doppelganger was somebody else. Rita, perhaps? The answer is yes. According to Clint Stevers, quote, To break this terrible deadlock of desire, Diane chooses to destroy the unattain- unattainable other, Camilla, a.k.a. Rita, by arranging to have her killed, unquote. And according to Alan Barra, quote, Betty disguises Rita in a blonde wig. The two look like sisters. There are several blonde women who look like projections of Diane. Betty, of course, a blonde actress at Betty's audition, two blonde waitresses at Winkies, Betty and Diane, and perhaps most sinister, an unnamed blonde sex worker seen with a pimp who Diane later hires as a hitman, unquote. So there are lots of doubles in this film, and I would argue that Adam is also a fraction of Diane's identity, but more on that later. Just keep, keep that in your pocket.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Dorothy, in The Wizard of Oz, is asked if she is a good witch or a bad witch by Glinda, in which Dorothy answers, I'm not a witch at all. I'm Dorothy Gale from Kansas. Dorothy knows who she is, and she knows what she wants, and she will do anything to get it however the only way to get what she wants is to follow the yellow brick road and to accept the fact that she is a witch by wearing the witch's powerful ruby slippers although dorothy experiences roadblocks along the way she achieves her deepest desire and returns home dorothy's story in oz is one of hope and triumph unlike Judy's, a.k.a. Francis's, and I want to mention that Rita's open confusion on who she is reminds me a bit of Alice's, from Lewis Carroll's Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. The Caterpillar asks Alice, who are you? And Alice responds, I I hardly know, sir. Just at present, at least I know who I was when I got up this morning, but I think I must have changed several times since then. What do you mean by that? Said the Caterpillar sternly. Explain yourself. I can't explain myself. I'm afraid, sir, said Alice, because I'm not myself, you see. I don't see, said the caterpillar. I'm afraid I can't put it more clearly, Alice replied very politely, for I I can't understand it myself to begin with, and being so many different sizes in a day is very confusing. It isn't, said the caterpillar. Well, perhaps you haven't found out found it so yet, said Alice, but when you have to turn into a chrysalis, you will someday, you know, and then after that into a butterfly. I should think you'll feel a little bit queer, won't you? Not a bit, said the caterpillar. Well, perhaps your feelings may be different, said Alice. All I know is it would feel very queer to me. You, said the caterpillar contemptuously, who are you? Which brought them back again to the beginning of the conversation. (laughs) the caterpillar may change but his change is not as complex as alice's or at least he doesn't think it is alice's identity crisis mirrors rita's while betty's reminds me a lot of dorothy's Mm -hmm. so speaking of fairy tale wizard of oz stuff let's (laughs) move on to our next topic which is a little short it's called goodbye mulholland drive aka yellow brick road according to alan barra quote Mulholland Drive was named for William Mulholland, an Irish immigrant who rode into Southern California on a mule near the end of the 19th century, got a job digging wells, and within a couple of decades parlayed his smarts into the position of superintendent of the Los Angeles Water Department. He can, with truth, be called the man who brought water to a desert city, making Los Angeles and thus Hollywood possible. Wow. It's a great symbolic thing, Naomi Watts said of the film's namesake. It can mean a lot of great things to some people and a lot of dark things to others. The long, unending, winding road, or as Lynch puts it, Mulholland Drive is a famous road with much, much mood. There's so many stories about that road and it's a very dreamy thing to think about. So many people come here to realize their dreams, unquote. So what does that sound like? What if Maholland Drive is the yellow brick road? Uh Oh. Now, it seems like that's a positive thing. But according to Jim Beviglia, I think is how you say their last name, um, from their article, An American Songwriter, Longtime Elton John collaborator Bernie Taupin, who wrote Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, was having a crisis. Quote, there was a period when I was going through the whole gotta get back to my roots thing, which spawned a lot of like-minded songs in the early days, this being one of them. Taupin says about the origins of Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. Quote, I don't believe I was ever turning my back on success or saying I didn't want it. I just don't believe I was ever that naive i think i was just hoping that maybe there was a happy medium way to exist successfully in a more tranquil setting unquote the viglia says quote in talpin's rendering the yellow brick road is a path to artifice and deceit unquote so if that's what the yellow brick road is at least in the elton john song it can kind of relate to mahollan drive Mm -hmm. Betty wants to have fame and fortune and also be considered a great artist and actress. She wants to be so good that casting agents and directors are fighting over her. She wants to make a big with little to no work. She wants to simply be discovered. Diane realizes the hard way that that is not true. And the easy way damns the soul. The yellow brick road or Mulholland Drive leads to artifice and deceit.
1: Wow. I really like this relation, and I also like the relation you make here to The Wizard of Oz in general, because in that story, you could argue that all of the characters are also pieces of Dorothy that she turns into these, like, separate entities. Yes,
0: 100%.
1: Because... I haven't seen The Wizard of Oz in like decades, but if I maybe I'm remembering incorrectly, but the like Scarecrow and Tin Man and the Cowardly Lion—they're all her family members, right? They are the like they're close to her. Yeah, they're her friends. They they're they're the work hands that work on her aunt and uncle's
0: farm that she's friends with.
1: Yes, yes. So I mean, you could argue that they have. A heavy influence over her so they kind of become part of her identity and part of her personality so to me those entities they're they're parts of herself that she you know wants to improve almost and yeah you know we'll we'll delve more into our theories behind the film and our final topic but i think that all of the women in the film like diane betty camilla they're all the same person Uh, Yes, I agree. Dorothy goes on this journey with her friends, but it's actually herself. (laughs) Yes. And she uses these characters to kind of keep her company so that she's not so lonely. And I think that Hollywood is a lot like Oz in that way. It's easy to get lost if you don't really fortify the parts of yourself that you really need in order to make it. So it's so, so, so easy to have a mental break. And to break completely from reality. Because the work that you have to do in order to make that magic happen, like, it's, it's actually really gross. And it's yes. very sad because you're expected to just, like, forget yourself as a person and, like, give up yourself to Hollywood, basically. Sure. You're selling yourself. Right.
0: Exactly. Um, like I said, like, my sister has dealt with some weird shit that she mm-hmm. has very much i mean she is personality wise she's a more steadfast and stronger person than I am, so dealing with that stuff obviously it bothers her greatly, but she is very good about being like a nope and moves on to the next thing yeah, and I think that if you don't have the right support system and The right people in your life to help you get through when when life becomes really weird in Hollywood, you know, Holly weird, then you can falter. And um, you know, and I think it takes like you have to have a certain kind of personality first of all, but I think even more importantly, you have to have a good support system. Yes, because I think no matter how you are as a person, if you have the right people helping you and supporting you, and you and you network with the right people you will have a pleasant experience just like any other job but if you don't it could be garbage dumpster life in hollywood you know let's talk about some other theories before we discuss our personal theories two that i really love are looking at this movie with the theory of like queerness in hollywood and mental health which mental Mm. health we did talk a little bit about earlier but we'll talk more here yeah According to the essay, Queer Uncanny, Mulholland Drive, have you done this before, quote, doubling is used to affect lesbian desire. The two women often resemble each other or other characters. Identification is deeply eroticized and the location of an identity, any identity, seems to become sexually charged for the two main characters. essay goes on to say about Betty and Rita, quote, there is something unsettling and uncanny in their sexual relationship, unquote. Betty and Rita seem to be playing caricatures of lesbian lovers. Betty, the white school girl, and Rita, the Spanish-speaking femme fatale, Heather K. Love says, quote, Betty's opening invitation to have Rita join her in the bed recalls a tradition of boarding school romances that walk a fine line between innocence and experience. The uncanniness operates because the characters look like real people, but they have no psychological depth. At one point, and at the same time, they are individuals. They are actors and they are symbols, unquote. And Betty's declaration of love for Rita that seemingly just like comes out of nowhere feels a lot like, (laughs) feels a lot like the U-Haul lesbian stereotype. But it also feels like a fairy tale or an old Disney movie where love at first sight is quintessential to the story. Yes. The homosexual eroticism is even more prominent if we still consider them a version of Dorothy and Alice. Anyone listening ever read the graphic novel Lost Girls by Alan Moore and Melinda Gebby? Well, if you know, you know.
1: What? What? No, I don't know. If you
0: like erotic graphic novels, then this is one of them.
1: <laughs> mm, okay. Yeah,
0: it's extremely controversial.
1: <laughs> um,
0: oh. And a <laughs> bit outdated um so if you're okay with that as well like if you're okay with dealing with that then it's a very weird it's weird i mean like i don't like oh. sex so it's like
1: you know yeah, so like oh but if God. anyone else wants to
0: read it it's really it's really interesting it's a hmm. weird erotic version of dorothy alice and wendy basically what the fuck? so anyway <laughs> okay <laughs> yeah, yeah okay anyway it also should be noted that the Wizard of Oz book series is incredibly queer coded. Ozma and Dorothy literally share a kiss in the book. I mean, come on. In the Return to Oz film, Dorothy looks in the mirror and sees Ozma as her reflection. Ozma and Dorothy are doubles. I mean, it's too perfect, y'all. Oh, and speaking of Disney, Diane's apartment in real life Is one of the Snow White cottages located in Los Feliz? What? Yes. What are those? Well, they're designed like Snow White's cottage from the film.
1: (gasps) Oh, yeah. They're just—I think there's like eight of
0: them. There's about eight cottages, and they all are designed to look like like a fairy tale cottage. That's so cool. Yeah. So it's interesting that that was picked for Diane's apartment.
1: Oh, -hmm. yeah. mm.
0: Yeah. So there's a lot of fairy tale disney aspects to all that interesting yeah the stereotypes that betty and rita play are uncanny and they are a bit outdated but yet it feels intentional this could be interpreted as a statement on how queer characters are sometimes presented in films one-dimensional with no layers and their care in their character or personality The fact that Uh Rita and Betty find Diane's dead body could also be a representation of homophobia in films. If you believe in this theory, that Diane died by suicide because of the guilt for having her ex-lover Camilla killed, then Diane's tragic end could possibly mean that a non-hetero relationship is unstable and destructive to both parties. Uh. Betty and Rita's horrified looks represent their fear for their future as a couple, which has yet to come to pass, since this film could be argued to be non-linear. Now, we know that queer relationships are not all like this, but there's a reason why people just want to see movies with healthy and joyful queer people who are happily in love. Movies have always had a hard time showing this.
1: (laughs) Seriously.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Now, speaking of non-linear storylines, Justin Holliday believes that that in of itself makes the film queer. Quote, Because Mulholland Drive features a narrative pattern that rejects linearity, my reading will be based on the theories of queer temporality, which (laughs) refute normative chronology, or linear patterns of time, in favor of promoting new ways of existing. Halperstam, who originally discussed this concept in A Queer Time and Place, explains, quote, Queer time is a term for those specific models of temporality that emerge within postmodernism once one leaves the temporal frames of the bourgeoisie, reproduction, and family, longevity, risk, safety, and inheritance, Therefore, Halberstam's earlier work on queer time facilitates later work on how queer people may not always adhere to heteronormative structures.
1: It's literally not straight. (laughs) <laughs> exactly exactly
0: so like the non-linear storyline in Mulholland Drive makes sense for queer characters all right uh like we discussed earlier Holiday goes on to mention how tropes play an important role to the queerness quote Drive is particularly transgressive as a film that engages in tropes like the femme fatale and the ingenue popularized during the Hayes Code era of Hollywood, which which functioned as a solution to the ways movies lower Americans moral mass resistance, such as promoting forms of supposed sexual deviance, which include but are not limited to portrayals of homosexuality. Now, we've talked about the Hayes Code quite a bit in previous episodes, but just as a refresher, the Hays Code was a set of guidelines (laughs) given Mm -hmm. to the makers of American films to follow. The code was in place from 1934 to 1968, and the code prohibited profanity, nudity, uh, graphic violence, sexual persuasions, aka homosexuality, (sighs) and rape. Now, since a lot of this film uses tropes from the old Hollywood Hayes Code era days, it would make sense that this film could be a take on how detrimental this Hayes Code was to gay actors. Betty's overtly sexual and honestly uncomfortable audition with Woody feels fake. Sure, yeah, yeah. it's a better acted scene than when she's practicing it with Rita, but that's all it is. It's acting. Many gay actors had to stay closeted during the Hays Code era and were even forced into lavender marriages, according to Thaddeus Morgan for the History Channel. Quote, these marriages were arranged by Hollywood studios between one or more gay, lesbian, or bisexual people in order to hide their sexual orientation from the public. They date back to the early 20th century and carried on past the gay liberation movement of the late 1960s. Probably the most well-known and less speculated lavender marriage was Rock Hudson's marriage to his secretary Phyllis Gates in 1955. Betty's acting with Woody dazzles everyone and seems like a dream come true, but if Betty is queer, then the scene becomes much more sinister than it already is. Camilla's engagement to Adam at the end of the film could also represent a lavender marriage. And with her secretly seeing Diane and kissing the other blonde Camilla, we see that Rita Camilla is still very much a gay.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Rita Camilla is a gay.
0: (laughs) According to Kristen Grady, quote, Lynch turned this relationship from the traditional adversaries of Girl Next Door and Femme Fatale into lovers, giving focus to a same-sex relationship that early noir films hid in double and trend days. Oh, and Club Silencio? That could represent a secret gay bar or club.
1: Yes! (laughs) Silencio.
0: Yes, we didn't get to talk too much about Silencio, which... This episode is already almost 90 minutes long. It's almost the the same length as the
1: pilot of Mulholland Drive. (laughs) I know. Oh, my God. My thought here is that Betty is extremely lonely because as an actor, you don't really I mean, I don't know. I'm not an actor. But if I had to guess, I would say you don't have a lot of time for meaningful relationships. And especially early on in your career and you have to have a certain degree of um narcissism i would say to make it in the industry not because not all narcissism is a negative thing like you have to have self-confidence and you you really have to believe in yourself but
0: oh sure i think people forget that like confidence is part of narcissism <laughs>
1: oh yeah 100 percent, definitely But I think a big part of that (laughs) weird-ass masturbation scene is that, like, Betty is, she's losing parts of herself to the industry. Well, that's technically
0: Diane masturbating.
1: Right, Right, yes. So, Betty (laughs) Diane. (laughs) Betty Diane. Uh, Betty Diane. She literally cannot have an orgasm because she's, like... If you think about it in this way, if you interpret it in this way, she's forced into marrying a man who she is not sexually attracted to. And if you believe
0: if you believe Diane and Betty are also Rita Camilla. Right.
1: Yes. I don't think they're separate. Mm -hmm. I think that Diane, she's like disassociating and she's sobbing during this scene I'm talking about the scene where, like, Adam and Camilla are sitting there, like, macking on each other when they announce their marriage. I think that Diane is sobbing here because she is, like, dying inside. Right. The queer part of her is upset, for sure. Yeah. 100%. She is, like, separate from herself. She's having an out-of-body experience, and she's like, oh, fuck. Like, she doesn't want to be with this man, but she has to Mm -hmm. in order to achieve her dreams. And the biggest catch 22 is that because she's giving herself away for her dreams, like her reality becomes really fucked up and wrong because, you know, she wants to touch that dream so badly. So it's this vicious cycle that nobody really has a grip on. And I think the same could be said about Adam. Mm. Like what if Adam's wife is having an affair because he doesn't want to have sex with her? Because he's gay. Because he's a gay. Yeah. He is a gay. And he's upset because he's being made to look kind of foolish because of Lorraine. Because (laughs) she's having sex with, you know, Billy Ray Cyrus, who is a guy who at that point in time kind of embodies what we think of as like a manly blue collar stereotype. Yeah. So you know lorraine needs this like traditionally masculine energy in her life so it's all just like this big gigantic ass cover-up for these two right this
0: is a modern i mean this is a 2001 film but it is a i guess that's still modern it's a modern um lavender marriage between two gay people in order to function in a corrupt hollywood
1: what if this is all going on inside Adam's head, because he is a gay? Maybe could be. What if he's he's writing a film that he has based around his life,
0: the Sylvia North story? Yes, is about Adam. <laughs>
1: What if he's Sylvia North? He could be. (laughs) Oh, oh my God.
0: (laughs) Oh, no. God, this is going to be, like, another, like, two hours long if we start diving into that. But I love that theory, though, too. That theory sounds awesome.
1: Yes.
0: Okay. So let's also talk about the theory of mental health and illness presented in this film. Now... This was a theory that I never that never once occurred to me until I read Hannah Klein's essay on Mulholland Drive called, Welcome to the Bipolar Silencio Club. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. Klein oh. equates the main character's mental decline with her own mental health disorder and treatment. Mm. She says, quote, when seeking treatment for your mental health, you find yourself missing your mania. It was fun. It was the Rita to your Diane regular you is walking around your apartment in a grody terry cloth robe (laughs) (laughs) but when you're with rita you're gorgeous and perky with glossy hair and amazing tits it's no wonder diane is obsessed with that relationship klein goes on to say most bipolar people come to a point where they realize they have to break up with mania An interesting thing about this film, especially regarding mental illness, is the fact that there is no reliable narrator. It's no surprise to anyone who likes David Lynch that his films have many interpretations and the average person probably doesn't understand most of them. However, what I love about the viewer's relationship to Diane is that instead of watching Diane deteriorate from the outside, you are brought in to experience it for yourself. Mm -hmm. so did you feel crazy after watching and drive were you confused disoriented good you've just connected with diane in the purest form your mindset was intentionally warped to emulate hers how fucked is that the abusive-esque relationship that diane and camilla have reminds me of my own ups and downs with bipolar disorder when it's good it's great. And when it's bad, it's debilitating. Sometimes you can't get off your bathroom floor and sometimes you convince yourself that you are a DDR champion and sign yourself up for a competition at 2 AM in Chinatown. (laughs) 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 This is from the book, The Women of David Lynch, which is a collection of essays. It's very, it's very good. So that was Hannah Klein's experience watching the film, which I never even thought of. And, um, as mentioned before, rita exclaims i don't know who i am and this could be that feeling of not understanding why you are the way that you are and i know Mm -hmm. that when i had undiagnosed depression and then recently undiagnosed ocd it was um it was tormenting and i was confused by my obsessive and dark thoughts and um you know it was a part of me yes but it didn't have a name yet and uh rita calling herself rita because she doesn't have a real name for it yet could also represent being misdiagnosed and the trauma and the identity crisis that comes along with being misdiagnosed
1: (laughs) oh buddy i could probably write (laughs) an entire separate episode of like a commentary on the mental health crisis in this film but i'll keep it sort of brief um i think that trauma plays an inherent role in entertaining people and as someone who is extremely interested in studying this I think that it plays a huge role in our entertainment industry I think those who can act have likely experienced something firsthand that allows them to have a duality that makes them incredible at masking or manipulating their own emotions Because they've done it to survive. And I think this is why we see so much abuse in Hollywood as well. Mental illness really kind of gives you the oomph that you need to make it as an artist. Because you have either touched tragedy or madness or extreme grief or, you know, maybe all of those things. But, you know, this could be said for any kind of art, really. But acting is a way of empathy. Which is so ironic that the industry involves so much psychopathy. Um, I think the audition scene is so telling of this because Betty is forced to do this audition with a much older man. And, you know, when a scene like this happens in reality, we are kind of engrossed by how, like, seemingly disgusting it is. You know? (laughs) There's, like... Been a rampant issue in Hollywood where like young girls are preyed upon, so it, we automatically like kind of cringe, I think. But there in that room, it's an illusion that she was so incredible at creating, and it's um, you know, it's very normalized for people in the industry, so they act like, you know, oh, this is fine.
0: What's can I just say something real quick? Yeah, yeah, this whole idea of uh, everybody clapped, right. <laughs> yeah this whole idea yeah. of everyone clapping after your audition not true never happens not i was once. gonna say never ever ever there are never that many people in the audition room with you it's usually yeah. just you and the director and, and the casting director maybe yeah and that's yeah. it that is it and they just say thanks goodbye and they just like sometimes they don't even look at you sometimes they don't even watch your audition sometimes they're reading emails on their computer or their phone while you're auditioning. They don't give a fuck. So um, I think it's really interesting that that whole scene is so, is played out in such a way that is so unrealistic in so many different ways. But anyway, continue.
1: Well, I think it's part of her fantasy, honestly. Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's her idea of what it's going to be like, because it's absolutely preposterous that someone from, an entirely different film company also would be sitting in the audition room because we just love it so much yeah 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 and then she leaves and like talks shit about the the guy like oh my god it's ridiculous but (laughs) i think a lot of people wonder how actors and artists seem to like sort of fool everyone into thinking that they're okay when they're actually crumbling inside and it's like hello like it's right there in front of your face like the struggle is so obvious because it's acting no one knows where to draw the line and a good example of this is like what happened to heath ledger like no one thinks that actors need protection because their job is to fit into any role and use whatever method is necessary despite the destructiveness that could go hand in hand with that like we kind of watch this play out in real time and we're all we we tend to be like so surprised kind of when it happens because it shouldn't be a surprise well
0: because i think we think let's just pretend like yeah how how come you're dying from a role you know and it's like what people don't realize is that it is very hard for some people to get to where they need to get to in order to play a certain role right some people have to i think have to method act because they don't know how else to get to that to that part Mm -hmm. and as somebody who has met various actors who has studied theater who has a minor in theater um i'm just gonna say (laughs) no judgment but you don't need to do that to get there you don't Mm -hmm. you maybe need more training and maybe you need um you know um like a helping hand like uh someone to help you get there but you Mm -hmm. don't need to kill yourself for a role right but if you don't again don't have the support don't have the resources and are dealing with the pressure of the interest industry the Hollywood machine um it's very easy to get there in ways that are unsafe which Mm -hmm. we talk about later on but yeah
1: the other thing that frustrates me is when people say like oh life imitates art i don't think that's necessarily true and i don't think that has to be the reality like it's uh i don't know i don't want to get too into that because i don't want to like go off on a tangent I know. but it, there has to be some like separation there and right. in this film you see what happens when there is no separation but the other thing that i want to talk about too that's highlighted really well in this film is how easy it is to just disappear in hollywood no one knows what happens to people they just like up and vanish and death maybe isn't a big deal because it quote unquote happens all the time it it shouldn't it shouldn't be that way another interesting point i thought of too was that hollywood itself has these deep roots of generational trauma that just keep going over the decades we need some cycle breakers in there for sure but i think rita is a ghost Mm. and i think she's killed by the industry and she's meant to be sort of like a guide to betty who is actually diane who is also camilla (laughs) and they're they're all the same because they all share the same trauma sure so something that david lynch did a really great job of in this film is and in all of his films really is he tells this story from the perspective of women who are being abused and i think we touched on this a little bit in firewalk with me but he is really good at seeing this from the female perspective i think especially for women hollywood is a place where you think women are treated well and it's so glamorous but it's actually a never-ending hellscape of abuse and you know, as a director and filmmaker, I think that Lynch saw that as a really good opportunity to tell stories like this and highlight why it's detrimental to women in particular. And he may not have set out with the idea to, like, create, like, this big whole social commentary on it and, like, raise awareness. Maybe he just wanted to tell it from an artistic perspective. I don't really know, but... um, I think that he has a gift for telling those stories. So I think that really plays well into how mental health is perceived in this film. Because he has that, like, sort of connection with how humans, you know, perceive things and how they struggle with those reality breaks and dissociations. And hoo he's just he's really gifted when it comes to telling those stories. Yeah,
0: I agree with that, for sure. Um, I'm also somebody who very much likes to feel, you know? Yes. Uh, and it might be because you and I are both water signs, like, films mm-hmm. where we are feeling what the other's characters are feeling. Whether yes. that's, you know, humor, um, sadness, whatever. Any of those really basic emotions. There's gotta be more than those, right? There's gotta be more emotions than <laughs> <in> that, <there>, right? <laughs> yeah, maybe. But, um... <laughs> um just the uh, being able to feel what the characters are feeling maybe what we're watching on the screen doesn't make too much sense or it's like really over exaggerated but sometimes like that's what you need to get that feeling as the audience member and yeah yeah, david lynch definitely does that in in a way that really speaks to you and i so yeah yeah definitely okay so let's get into our final thought What do we think (laughs) happened? So we previously mentioned some of our favorite theories and kind of added in our own theories to those theories. Um, So it was kind of a bit muddled, sorry about that. Um, Hope you were able to follow (laughs) along okay. Um, But we both have theories that, um, at least my theory at least, I didn't see a big part of my theory anywhere on the internet or in any books that I read. Um, Mm -hmm. so I thought, Ooh, I kind of want to mention this then because, and listen, like, I don't think I made this one up. I don't, I'm sure I'm not the only one who thought about it, but I personally couldn't find it anywhere else. So I'm not like, we're not going to quote anything in this part of the show because this is all sort of like our raw, uh, our, our ideas, you know, that are just (laughs) about this film.
1: (laughs) Some Reddit user is going to pop up and be like, um, Actually, yeah, push up her glasses. Um,
0: actually, <laughs> so, um, a, a large part of my theory has already been said. Um, so I can't take credit for this part that I'm about to talk about, but this was something that before I started researching the movie is something that I did think about. So, Rita, aka Camilla, Laura Herring's character, is the embodiment of, I guess the immoral part of, of Hollywood. Having sex with a higher up in order to get a part, having to do something that you won't really want to do in order to become famous. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, doing something against your morals in order to have fame and fortune. Betty is the embodiment of Diane's hope and innocence. So when Betty meets Rita, she thinks that Rita isn't a threat. She's enticing. She's sexy and desirable. Mm -hmm. She has a lot of cash in her purse. (laughs) She's obviously well off. (laughs) She is in love with her because Rita is the golden ticket. Betty doesn't know yet what Rita really is. Rita Mm -hmm. is this idea of using your sex appeal in immoral ways i guess to become famous and it doesn't even have to be sex it could just be doing something that you don't want to do in order to get the role that you want and i think that that is what why betty and rita get together right betty is in love with her because right she loves the idea of her so, um, Betty and Rita see the future when they find Diane's corpse. It's what will become of them if their relationship continues and not in the queer way that we mentioned earlier, but it will, it's what will happen to Diane if her hopes and dreams and innocence sleeps with the immoral side of Hollywood. Betty knows that things will turn out bad when she sees Diane's corpse, but she still embraces Rita anyway. And I think it's interesting that Diane's old roommate or girlfriend or whoever she is, looks at Rita suspiciously when Rita and Betty ask where Diane lives. I mean, it's so eerie the way she looks at her. She looks at her like, you're not right. You know, like something's wrong about you. She doesn't even know who the hell she is. Coco and the other older lady, Lorraine, Um, they say that like, there's trouble in there, right? Or someone is in trouble. And then Coco says to Betty, if there's trouble in there, get rid of it. And I think that's like, it's telling that the actor who plays Coco, her name is Ann Miller. She was a famous singer and actor from the golden age of Hollywood. So more on this in a bit, right? So I think it's interesting that she was saying, listen, I know, I know that what I I am a veteran. Of this industry i know that there's when there's trouble get rid of it
1: oh maybe she's gay maybe she's a okay no, no i maybe but like
0: i think it's just like i know that you are gonna maybe do something that you're going to regret in order to get a role don't do it ah, get rid of yes. it
1: yes, yes i yes. think that's okay, what it okay. means
0: yep taking queerness out of the picture Right. I mean, you can keep it in the picture, but it's <laughs> like doing doing something that you don't want to do. Whether it's getting into a lavender marriage, whether it's sleeping with a producer, whether it's whatever. You know, like making a decision that you're going to regret in order for what for a role in an industry mm-hmm. where you can just be spit out and like discarded and nobody cares. You know. So I think yep. I think Coco's warning is significant. Okay so now i want to mention the blonde camilla played by melissa george i think that her kissing brunette camilla rita means that george's character is also diane in the dinner party scene diane tells coco that she arrived in la because she won a jitterbug contest oh and that's another wizard of oz reference by the way the jitterbug song and dance was a number that was cut from the film oh yes um so Diane won a gender bug contest and that's how she got to Hollywood and then she met Camilla quote on the Sylvia North story so the guy the random guy sitting next to Diane says oh Camilla is great in that what he is saying is you were great in that because Diane became Camilla and did something a sexual favor got married to a straight person. I don't know. She did something that was against her morals to get that role. Diane then says, I wanted the lead so bad. And she's not saying that because she's jealous of Camilla because, you know, Camilla got the part. But it's because she is Camilla. She says Camilla got the part. And then she says, Camilla helped me get some other parts in some of her films. So it sounds like Like we talked about earlier, like we think that all these characters are the same person. So it sounds like Diane in this scene is talking about how, well, she's jealous of Camilla. You know, Camilla got the part, but that's okay, because then she helped me. But it's like Camilla got the part because Diane had to become Camilla to get the part. Yeah. So that's what that scene means to me. Coco, right, played by a Golden Age actress, pats Diane's hand knowingly, saying, I see. She gets that Diane had done something to become Camilla in order to get the part. She mm. knows that something sad has happened in order for her to be famous. So I think that's why, cause it's like when Coco like pats her hand, like, I see, I see. It's like, why is she acting that way? Was she acting like sympathetic? It's because she probably gets it. She probably knows she's probably had to do that before or felt like she had to do it before or knew people who had to do that and so because she's a veteran actor she gets and had everything she's seen everything so i think that's why that part's important now most of what i just said is not revolutionary (laughs) um the youtube channel twin perfect touch on touched on a lot of that in their own video about the film um although they didn't think that melissa george's character was also diane um that is something that i think is the is her That is what she had to become because her name is Camilla, right? So that's the, and she's blonde. So that's what she had to do to become the right person, right? So um, one thing that Twin Perfect also mentioned that I agree with is that the cowboy is an embodiment of the Hollywood machine. However, and hear me out, who is one major character that we really haven't discussed a whole lot of? And like we have, but like not as much as like Betty, Diane, Camilla. It's Adam. Adam's storyline seems to kind of come out of nowhere in a way, right? Like he has this unfaithful wife, and then there's Billy Ray Cyrus, the pool guy, and then there's all (laughs) that pink paint, and it's like, what is going on? You know, it's convoluted, it seems, right? Wrong. (laughs) (laughs) I think that Adam is another manifestation of Diane. I think Adam is the artist in her. The director of her creativity, the one who doesn't care about fame, but cares about their art, their vision. What's the photo for? Adam says when he sees the blonde Camilla. I'm not casting her in my film, he thinks. And it's not until Adam is completely down on his luck, right? He has a broken heart and a broken bank account. It, that's when he decides he needs to meet with the cowboy. This is the girl is one of the most creepy and sinister aspects of this film because it shows how much someone will give up and how someone will almost quite literally sell their soul in order to stay in the business. Mm -hmm. Adam, the director of Diane's creative choices and art, says this is the girl when Blonde Camilla auditions because he knows that this is this is the girl that will get the movie made. The saddest scene in this film, in my opinion, is when Adam sees Betty during the audition. Many interpret the exchange as romantic or possibly that Adam thought Betty literally would have been better. But I think this scene is purely metaphorical. Adam looking longingly at Betty is Diane's artistic side, wishing that her innocent side was enough to get the part, but it's not Mm
1: -hmm. the fact
0: that Adam. And Brunette Camilla are romantically involved also works for this theory because Camilla the embodiment of immorality sin shame whatever to get to that role and Adam the embodiment of art and creativity are getting married Betty literally disappears in the film because that's part of Diane that part of Diane is gone so the art side and the corrupt side of her are getting married they're staying together they're the Uh ones who are in love the innocent is gone so now there's no turning back diana's stuck or is she i think the masturbation scene as wild as it is i know but i think it's interesting that it happens after camilla is uh, supposedly dead so what does the blue key open that's what she asks the hitman when she says i want this girl gone and then he's always okay when the job is done here this this you'll see this key you'll know that the job's done when does okay. it open he laughs because the key doesn't open anything it closes things it locks the door camilla is gone judy is now Frances. so diane's masturbation scene is her <laughs> trying to make it in Hollywood without Camilla. So she is trying to get to where she needs to go in life, in her career, without the help of Camilla, without Camilla jacking her off. (laughs) She's trying Mm -hmm. to do it herself and Mm -hmm. she can't, she can't get off on herself. Mm. So I know that scene is like really wild, I really think that that's what it means. Yeah. So because she can't make it on her own, she disappoints all of the people who said that that she would someday make it. The elderly couple represent all of the people in her life who were so excited for her to go to Hollywood and make it. And she's haunted by them at the end because she's washed up. Yeah. And I also think that Coco, being Adam's mom, makes sense too because if adam is the artist then he was inspired by or raised by coco who is a legendary film actress anne miller so it makes sense that adam is inspired from the old hollywood ideals so Mm
1: -hmm. anyway
0: that is my very raw
1: theory around this film i love it i think that actually that makes a lot of sense honestly oh thanks yeah you know not that you needed me to like validate it for you but (laughs) i'm really
0: interested to hear what you have to say
1: okay so this was my first time seeing the film like i mentioned before and after watching it and really mulling it over (laughs) or <laughs> should I say <laughs> Mulhollanding it over. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> Off the stage. <laughs> <laughs> I <laughs> um like I briefly mentioned before, I think that all of the women are the same person. All of these characters, same woman. Yeah. Possibly created by Adam. Ooh. But the thing is, they're all the same because the industry itself creates them. Mm. Um, And I think that women are expected to play all of these roles and be able to do whatever the higher-ups ask them at any point in time. Mm. And we kind of... The reason why I am wondering if this is all a story made up by Adam is because he is being expected to do that by the industry leaders as well. So... Naomi Watts plays all of these characters in the film, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I'm i just going to call her Naomi Watts because she plays so many people in my eyes. <laughs> yeah. That, like, by the end of the film, she can't take it anymore. And she just, like, she just ends it. Like, she is the hitman. Oh. I think that the creature also behind the dumpster is supposed to be that like seedy underground that we were talking about earlier um it's the underground happenings that no one really pays attention to but they are there and obvious for the regular quote unquote regular people who don't live the Hollywood fantasy but they're like living there among like all of these these movie stars and stuff and that's why this random-ass guy knows about what's behind Winkie's. Mm. Like, the guy that seemingly has no other prominent role in the film, yet, like, we hear his story just... It, it it seems like it's just an aside or, like, a little vignette in the film, like its own separate story, but it's really not, because it's all intertwined. Mm. So, like, in the beginning, the man in the diner says, like, He's talking about this particular Winkies. Like, I think it's supposed to be implied that it's a chain. So, like, more than one Winkies exists. Yeah, so that was actually filmed at a Denny's. Yes. That, yep. Yeah, that Lynch
0: changed the name to Winkies. Which, Winkies is another Wizard of Oz reference. Because the land of the Winkies. I think those are the people yes. that served the witch. Yep. So, I think that's interesting. But, yeah.
1: Yeah. So, um... It's interesting because, so there's more than one, right? Mm -hmm. Like, just like there's more than one Diane because Hollywood is full of them. Because they're a dime a dozen. Yes. And behind every one, there's a dumpster monster. Yes. Just like inside every actor in Hollywood, there's a darkness or an ugliness. So by the end of the movie, the dumpster monster ends up with the blue box, right? Yeah. Like and i see this as kind of a symbol of the dreams that these aspiring actors have and how you have to have like the right key to unlock those dreams but it also has to happen in the exact right place at the right time because the magic is all made by complete chance or luck of the draw and What is mind boggling is that this happens so often, but the chances of making it are actually so rare. And I think that's what adds to the layers of complexity in the film. Like when you go back to square one, hence the shape of the box, what you find inside is extremely disappointing because Hollywood or life really, it's not at all what you'd hoped for or what you imagined it to be. And like at the end, you see like the old people like come out of the box and they're like these weird teeny tiny little figurines but like it brings us back to the beginning of the film where she's saying goodbye to the old people and they're like oh can't wait to see you in the movies but they appear in the apartment and it's almost like they're laughing at her yeah for like they're making a mockery of her because they're like oh you idiot i knew you wouldn't do it yeah (laughs) and she it's too much it's too much for her to handle so um that's my theory that's my thought on it i know it's kind of like a no
0: i was just thinking how much i love that because if if the winkies scene was supposed to just be a vignette like nothing else you know like whatever or i i think it actually might be part of the pilot i can't remember um Uh uh-huh if that's the case then why you know it's like why add the dumpster monster at the end of the film with the box mm-hmm. why because obviously it connects with the bigger picture yeah so i think you're uh I, I think you're right about that and i really love that interpretation
1: yeah and the fact that it's so normalized to the people in hollywood but then you got these like regular ass people who like are presented with this dumpster monster, which, by the way, fucking gave me nightmares. I know. Abby texted me and said, I had a nightmare about the dumpster monster. <laughs> I I have already seen images of it, so, like, I knew what to expect, but that whole entire scene makes me want to barf every time what? I watch that it. That scene it's is so, so full of
0: dread. It's great. It
1: is so brightening like it it makes me teary-eyed to think of it um but yeah i think that like showing him like fainting at the sight of it is like for any for anyone like us for us normies (laughs) like this would be absolutely atrocious but like for people like you know betty and adam was like oh everyday shit (laughs) They're like, yeah,
0: whatever, whatever. Sure, yeah.
1: So, um, yeah, I think that is it's really supposed to speak to the regular people. (laughs) You know, something we didn't, something we didn't get to
0: touch on was, um, how coffee is presented in the film. Of course, David Lynch loves coffee, but um, a lot of the time, a lot of times when people are drinking coffee, it's them trying to like stay awake and like stay out of the dream you know? Yep. So, yep. um, I think it's interesting using this example of Winkies and how the people who, the, the normal people, the two guys, you know, whoever they are, yeah, um, yep. they're at a diner drinking coffee, talking about like the deep, dark shit that happens in their hometown, you know,
1: there's, yeah. and then you got the, the people in the, meeting who drink like the finest espresso and it's still not good enough for him sure
0: yeah he spits it out he doesn't even want it he doesn't want to wake up from the dream yeah right right
1: oh yeah. yeah yeah yeah
0: well everyone that's it for this month's episode of good morning nancy thank you all so much for listening we hope you enjoyed uh this second episode in the return of good morning nancy
1: <laughs> mm, yes.
0: um patreon is coming back soon or maybe it's back already at this point either way head on over to patreon.com good morning And honestly, even just $2 a month is extremely helpful. So if you appreciate what we do, head on over to patreon.com slash goodmorningnancy and give what you can. We would really appreciate it.
1: Yes, and always a free way to support the show is by following us on social media. So Instagram at goodmorningnancy and Twitter at goodmorningnan and uh reposting and retweeting our content really helps others find our show too so um word of mouth that's always good yep (laughs) so tell your friends (laughs) spread the word we're back yes
0: thanks Mm -hmm. again for listening stay safe out there we love you all to death have a good morning
1: bye